Hello and welcome to Amplify. On this week's episode, working with Irla was the first foray into vocal music for me as a as an adult composer. Donica Dennehy on his opera The Hunger and the collaborative processes between the composer, director and performers which led to this work. And we marked the death of composer and conductor Colin Mulby, who passed away late last month at the age of 83. I'm Jonathan Grimes and I'm joined this week by music researcher Stephanie Ford from Maynooth University. Welcome to the podcast, Stephanie. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. So your research explores collaboration and the creative process focusing on Shano singers and contemporary composers from Ireland in particular. Tell me more about this research and how it relates to this recent opera by Donica Dennehy. What I'm interested in really is why Shano singers and composers choose to collaborate. And I'm also interested in how composers and singers collaborate. So what does the process of creative collaboration look like, for example, and how we can examine it. So it's not just about looking at the musical work itself or the historical context of such works. It's also about understanding the types of relationships that exist between composers and singers and how these relationships shape the creative process. And then to extend that out a little bit further, I'm also interested in the impact of these sorts of collaborations on the wider musical culture, particularly in Ireland and in an Irish context, and looking at whether they're an indicator of certain shifts or changes to the way that we create and listen to music now. I suppose composers have always collaborated with singers and with other musicians. It's it's part of the act of creation of a new work. Has there been a, a shift in how composers, specifically within Ireland, collaborate? You know, the idea of collaboration has always existed in in different contexts, whether it's within traditional music or contemporary composition. There's always been that that element of collaboration, even between, say, performer and composer. Mm. What's different, I suppose, from, you know, the beginning of the, you know, the 21st century, particularly in relation to collaborations between Shano singers and contemporary composers, is that the boundaries between genres And the levels of collaboration are probably a lot more fluid and there's a lot more engagement between composer and between singer. And I guess when you speak about this sort of collaboration, you are focusing, aren't you, in particular on the collaboration between traditional Irish, what is described as Shano singing and contemporary composition. Yeah, and I suppose it might be helpful to understand when I'm referring to Shano singing, what I'm actually talking about in this context. But I suppose in a general sense, Shano singing can be defined as unaccompanied solo singing in the Irish language, whereby ornamentation and variation are features of the melody. It's a very basic definition of it. But I think it's important to understand as well about Shano singing and the term Shanos. It's much more recent than the singing practice that it relates to. It first appears in writing around the period of the Gaelic revival. And Shanos was very much linked to the promotion and preservation of the Irish language at this time. And because of that emphasis on the Irish language, Shanos has sort of inherited a discourse 
that has portrayed it as quite an elite practice within traditional music itself. And the association with the Irish language as well has sort of positioned it on the periphery of Irish musical culture. The reason that the hunger is so interesting in this context is that it both uses and challenges this discourse. And it does so through collaboration and that this is having quite a significant effect on the direction of musical culture. You mentioned The Hunger, and that was performed at the Abbey Theatre last August by the Crash Ensemble with Shannos singer Irla O'Linard and soprano Catherine Manley. And you spoke to Irla along with the composer Donica Dennehy and the director Tom Creed. What were the main points of those conversations that we'll hear shortly and how this ties in with your research? Mm-hmm. What I found particularly interesting about the the conversations that we had was this idea that this traditional discourse between traditional music and maybe contemporary music or contemporary composition is being used, but also being challenged in in this particular opera. And the operatic form facilitates this as well, and particularly because this is a blend of opera and theatre. Uh, but one of the things that I find particularly interesting is this idea that Dunica actually picked up on, which is, you know, a quote from Salman Rushdie, which calls history contested ground. This opera in particular allows for history to be portrayed in that way. So you've got the traditional roles of the soprano singing in English and the character that Irla Leonard plays, who's the everyman character, who's singing in Irish. The soprano has much more material than the singer, for example. But then there's also these screens that are portraying contemporary outlooks and positions on famine more globally and more generally from academics and intellectuals like Noam Chomsky and Megan Vaughan. So there's that idea of history being contested ground, but also opera and this type of opera and the way that it's fused with theatre acting as a site of negotiation for all of this. So let's hear this piece now. We're going to hear from Donica Dennehy, the composer. We're going to hear from the Shano singer Irla O'Linard and later on in the piece from Tom Creed, the director. Donica, you've done a lot of work in recent years in theatre, in opera, which I suppose is more collaborative type of art form. Yeah. I wondered whether you could tell us a little bit about when you decided to start working in a more collaborative way with artists and musicians huh. and maybe also why you choose to collaborate with others. I suppose I choose to collaborate because it gives you a fresh perspective on what you do yourself. It's a way of opening up your imagination and also a way of doing stuff that you couldn't do alone. And I suppose I first really started collaborating as a kind of a serious thing in my practice around 2007 when I wrote Grog's Boss for Irlo Leonard. And there would have been no real way that I could have written that piece without spending a year and a half meeting with Irla to look at how Shannos works. And I used to record him. He would sing all these various songs and we'd talk about their meanings. And that really was a collaborative process. I mean, yes, I went away and wrote that piece and then handed it to Irla. But there was this whole gestation period which, which really depended on these conversations and almost informal workshops that I did with Irla. I found that just really exhilarating, you know, to, to work in that way. Shintoch 
My name is Irla Olinard. I'm a musician, I'm a singer, a songwriter, a teacher. My initial encounter with Dunica was was on someone else's suggestion, actually, Mary Hickson, uh, the wonderful Mary Hickson, who was managing the O'Reilly Theatre way back in the day when the Crash Ensemble were based there. She said, you know, you need to meet this guy called Dunica Dennehy. I didn't know who she was talking about. And she said, he writes for the Crash. I didn't know who they were. So I went to Cork. Uh, some weeks later, on my own, just to see them. And we, we struck up a conversation, and that was the beginning of a kind of a, a phase of um, in, interaction with Dunnock that, that intensified over a few years to create the piece called Grog's Boss. mightn't have been as lengthy an engagement with the composer were it not for the fact that my skill set was not was a poor match for the task it required quite a bit of uh, teasing out discussion uh, encouragement and that was even before the piece was presented to me in written form and even then there was a considerable mountain to climb in terms of the rhythmic and tonal complexity of the piece I remember at one point I wouldn't have been able at all to understand what my entry note would be for any particular passage. I wasn't actually able to garner that from what I was hearing. Now, eventually I became quite accustomed to that. In a sense, I really had to evolve my ability to hear and I had to enhance what it was I was understanding when I heard heard things. And did you find the precision of a piece of music like that in, in terms of the structure of it and all of that, was it quite difficult to maybe situate yourself in it because Shannos has that that element of freedom to it, certainly in terms of maybe rhythm or... Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, the thing about Shannos is because you're on your own, you're, you're, you're a little bit like an Ellen Pipe, you're self-accompanying. And you have this... There, I, I've often thought of Shannos as there is a sort of a time stream going on in your head as you're singing. And it, it allows you to make decisions. It isn't that you're not making decisions. You're very aware of time and you're very aware of making decisions, but you're making them all on your own. And the only other companion you have is the song. So it's a, it is actually, there are actually almost two entities. There's you and the song. But with this piece, uh, Grog's Boss, you can imagine the extraordinary additional level of, of complexity, the number of players, the strange, to my ear anyway at that time, sonorities, the presence of the conductor, all of these simultaneous codings and events and signalings, they were very difficult to come to terms with. It was very steep and at times very painful. There were plenty of times I remember being in hotels where I literally held my head in my hands and said, what are you doing? What made you think you could do this? I'm not saying this still doesn't happen from time to time, but it definitely happened back then. <laughs> now, it, it, you know, it was quite frightening. Mm. And then because the thing takes on a momentum, you can't stop it, you know. 
Yeah, once it, it starts, you should keep going with it's it. It's an animal and you have to go. And But it's very exciting too. I remember we took it to my village down in Ballyvourney for one performance. That was a profound experience for me, actually, in terms of presenting to my own people these um, new manifestations of structures within song that were, you know, very deep part of their lives. And I actually was very moved by their appreciation and their openness. And, and the Dunnaco was very moved by it. I think very moved, especially given his own familial background in Schlievlochra area. <laughs> I knew Shan Nose from growing up. My parents are from Kerry, and actually my grandmother used to even play in Schlieve Lucre. We visited Schlieve Lucre, and I did join some little sessions as a kid. And also there were these sessions that were held in my mom's mother's house where people would just gather. I played the flute, so I played dance music, actually. But somehow there was something really strong about Shan Nose and unique. It's not just it's inherent value in itself. At the time that I came to it, I had been doing more and more things with overtones. So I became more and more interested in overtones and was writing a number of almost like overtone etude pieces around the mid-2000s, like bulb, stainless staining. And they were all sort of ways of finding my way into that world. And more and more I felt, oh, I really want to do something in vocal music. And the vocal music that I kept calling out to me was the Shannos tradition because it seemed pregnant with possibility in terms of overtones, setting them with overtones. And that's what I started off doing, making overtone etudes of Shannos songs. So there was a kind of perfect marriage of about what I was interested in, my odd preoccupations as a composer and what this tradition could offer, and yet the way it, also the way it spoke to me emotionally. I wondered with Grog's boss, because it was such, you know, a seminal work and it yeah. hadn't been done before, was there any wariness about what it was that you were creating? Yeah, I was nervous. Yeah, for sure. I remember the first performance in the Samuel Beckett Theatre and I just closed my eyes before it was all going to happen because I was going, oh, where am I going now with this? It's a kind of post-colonial hang-up to be really honest. So you'll, you'll think from the hunger that I'm obsessed with colonialism and its and its effects. There is a kind of post-colonialist hang-up in Ireland that if you deal with the tradition at all, it's lesser than, you know, in some way. So I was kind of nervous about it. The second it was performed, I knew I would, I, I felt right to me. Absolutely felt right. And I feel very proud of that piece. So I 
I'm Tom Creed. I'm the stage director working about half in theatre and half in opera. I work on a mixture of older repertoire and contemporary creations. I move between uh, working with old things and working with new things. And I guess sometimes in the case of The Hunger, new things that are made out of old things. For me, the starting point always with the productions, whether it's a piece of existing repertoire or a new work, is that it needs to resonate with the contemporary world. So I usually don't stage the existing repertoire in historical costume or in anything that looks like a historical staging, um, but rather try to find a way of kind of bringing it into the time zone of the audience and letting the ideas resonate with ideas from the present. I've always worked with new work, um, I mean, the th initially in the theatre, working with writers and uh, also some collective ways of creating. But for me, it's really important that the opera continues to be alive and that the work we do on the repertoire is informed by the work that we do with contemporary artists. And he had come to get the bit of me as it was the day that the ring was giving out As it was the day The officer told him He had no time to enter his name on the book And he was sent away in that condition The hunger, it really, it's an examination of the Irish famine from a particular vantage point in a way. One of the main strands is this, these chronicles written by Asenath Nicholson, who was a fascinating woman who came to Ireland when basically everyone else was coming in the opposite direction. She came from, she's originally from Vermont, but she came from New York City where she had ran, ran a boarding house. And she wrote about what she saw and she traveled often on foot. In fact, in the Atlas of uh, the Famine in Ireland, you can see maps of where Asenath walked. And, and I found this an incredible account. So that's the kind of backbone of the narrative of, of this piece. But then I also wanted to reflect on the fact that there was very little from the van vantage point of people who actually suffered. Also, the music tradition basically went silent during the, the famine. And so there was very little source material from there. And I actually wanted to reflect that in the balance of the piece, that the, 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 the outsider had so much more material. And then he's basing it, which are the, the, the vantage point of the sufferer, which I put in this position of this old man, Madeira uh, Leonard, ha is working off scraps, you know, and conjuring out of scraps. This imbalance is in the piece. There's a sort of um, a brokenness to the narrative that I have to sing, which is not easy to learn because it initially seems to confront whatever software I have for making sense out of a narrative. It's so broken up that the language doesn't make any sense to me, literally. Now, it's, of course, meant to because uh, the, 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 the man that I'm um, playing in that role is divested of any agency, including the ability to make sense of his predicament and deliberately in the language of 
his motherland, Ireland. So his language is, is cut to shreds, as he also is. me a little bit about the role of the director in a work that requires such a collaborative effort in order for it to be realised. Is that something that is, is very challenging or is that one of the things that I suppose is attractive about working on opera and theatre? I mean both all the time and you know a project like The Hunger it had started a little bit before I came on board so Danica had an idea of making a work on the famine and had discovered the writing of Asnat Nicholson and had set a section of Asnat Nicholson's writing initially as a concert piece and then had the idea to expand it into an, uh, a piece of music theatre with a Larmel sound in the USA who originally commissioned the piece. And then we went on a journey together with it and so we um, we made a list of experts that we sought out, some of whom uh, agreed to be part of the process, others who didn't. We worked out the kind of questions we would like to ask them, and then we travelled and we interviewed them. All of those interviews had to happen in advance of Danica composing the full piece, because in a way he, he needed that material to compose with, both in terms of the dramaturgy of the piece, but also in terms of the spectral analysis of the voices, and in terms of how he would compose the ensemble to accompany them. And then, of course, there's this extra element, which is in the stage version, which are these interviews. And these interviews are provocative in places. They certainly stimulate discussion. One important thing I want to say is that they are not all in agreement with each other. And I'm not necessarily in agreement with everything that's said in these interviews. They are placed in a kind of dramatic way through the piece. And if you sort of pay attention, you'll notice contradictions in the way that they are interpreting what's happening. Because in a way, I consider, this is borrowing a, a little phrase from Sam and Rushdie, history to be contested ground, you know, and then we, we make of it what we will. One thing I like about the stage version is the way it ends in this kind of ambiguous, almost light there's almost an optimism, but it's a bittersweet optimism. It's got a little sting in it, too. And I love the ambiguity of that. Despite all the direct messages, and there are many quite sort of hard-hitting things in the piece, it also has a kind of openness. I kind of feel that you have to have a really necessary embrace of the ambiguous to allow people have their own imagination in coming to something and uh, invest it with stuff from their own life. It's about letting references and uh, images build up. And then also, of course, something that's very important for me is making the staging really come from the music. So the music is, in a way, made inevitable by the stage action, which requires a very detailed knowledge of the music and also a very meticulous staging so that the, you know, periods of intense action set off intense 
uh, periods in the music, like the voices coming together, comes out of a kind of physical proximity. A bunch of that is work that you can plan and then a bunch of that is kind of uh, instinctual exploratory work that happens on the floor uh, in rehearsals with the singers. The requirement in The Hunger is that I really have to embody very powerful emotions. That is revelatory in many ways. I mean, the Shannos is a confined beam of emotion, saturated with sort of well-understood tropes and language, and then shaped very specifically for kind of certain emotional outcomes. Whereas the hunger and is much wilder, much more wounded. That has been very interesting in terms of when I found my body doing something, it, then it actually t told my emotions to do something. So I have no problem crying I, or anything like that on stage. It just happens. And that surprises me because, you know, I don't set out to do to cry on stage. <laughs> but the role I have in The Hunger really demands of me to be extremely vulnerable. It's a cataclysmic personal uh, situation. I mean, somebody told me after the, the, the preview that um, they mentioned that in the case of the Holocaust, somebody had said that it wasn't six million Jews that died. It was one person that died six million times. And I went to bed then thinking that night about that one person in the case of the Irish famine. That's sort of the job I have is to be that one person. And it crystallizes, you know, when you're touching the gravestone and, you know, it's very powerful. And, you know, you, you, you become literally a conduit for an enormous weight of emotion. When you have a sort of a intervallic skeleton of a Shannos kind of thing in a piece of music, and then you have to make your own of it, it isn't that easy. And one of the reasons it isn't easy is because you really don't know what to do. And you don't know how far you can press the idiomatic button. You know, you don't know how far you can take it into Shannos before you s start losing what the piece needs as a compendium, as a polyphonic sort of thing. And, and that's a huge challenge. And then I often find when I'm singing it, I sometimes think, what is this? I mean, is it, is it traditional or is it, what is it? And then I have to, I have to admit it, it's actually something you're doing. And it's neither this nor that. The fact that Donica's operas have always been presented in the context of theatre festivals or at the Abbey. So a theatre audience uh, is coming to engage with that work. But I think it's an exciting time for this. There's an opportunity for us to really develop this uh, operatic tradition that we've only had infrequently. And yeah, the idea that like you, that you go to contemporary opera, like often, I'm developing a new opera with Michael Gallen, which is coming down the tracks. Yeah, Donica has another opera coming down the tracks. He's like Donizetti there at the rate he's, he's <laughs> churning them out. Donica Donizetti. Um, 
you know, and also like with Donica, for example, that people are able to see different sides of him as a composer. So these kind of uh, kind of ferocious, theatrical, ironic works that he makes with Enda, but then also these very emotional kind of historical, political work like The Hunger. So people get to see different sides of composers. They get to see different sides of, of stage directors and singers. And that's the exciting moment in which we find ourselves. What I find most interesting about collaboration is if it does, if it changes me in any way. I'm always a little bit disappointed in myself if I end up doing a project where I didn't really have to do anything um, or learn anything or change anything about myself. No, of course, they're a lot easier to do. <laughs> you just leave the stage thinking that you didn't really fulfill your abilities because I think my my best abilities are actually in changing myself and in in making new things I've become sort of increasingly uncomfortable with thinking of myself as a Shannon singer and despite the fact that you know if I'm described anywhere they'll always say that I mean, I'm sure there must be Shannon singers who are very disappointed with hearing me called a Shannon singer because they don't see me doing a whole lot of Shannon's <laughs> and, and my own impression is that what I prefer to think about is making new things, although the materials may be old or sound old. Has working with Earliftically for such a long period of time or, you know, for the past, I think you said 14 years. Yeah. Has that had an influence, I suppose, on the way that you approach things from a musical or artistic perspective? It has had a huge impact on how I write vocal music. Working with Earla was the first foray into vocal music for me as a as an adult composer it's it's nice when there's an area that you have to discover when there's a part of the picture you need to color in in order for it to make any sense not just to get it over the line uh, it requires a degree of generosity on in the part of the composers as well <laughs> it, it requires i think for everybody to be seen as a composer and it requires um also having that particular stance about music making that it's a kind of a beautiful, ineffable area that where things happen. For me, opera is as good a, a term as any for a work that happens on stage uh, with singing. Someone might say that the hunger, you know, doesn't have a plot. But just waiting for God to have a plot or end game, you know, either. I'm interested in narrative, I'm interested in story, but mostly what I'm interested in is when I go to the theatre, whether it's it's a play or a dance or opera or music theatre or a sacred stage consecration play, I want something to happen in front of me. And I want to feel like there's something happening uh, for real in front of me. That live quality, for me, that's the thing that's interesting. That's the, the thing that sort of puts us into this state of listening and contemplation and excitement. That's the Keening, 
from Donica Dennehy's The Hunger, recorded on Nonesuch Records by Alarm Wheel Sound and conductor Alan Pearson. Take a look at our show notes for this podcast for a list of all the extracts and music used. Thanks to Stephanie Ford for her work in researching this feature and in interviewing Donica Dennehy, Irla O'Leonard and Tom Creed. Next, former RTE music producer and RTE Lyric FM station head Seamus Crimmins on the composer and choral conductor Colin Mulby, who passed away on the 24th of November, aged 83. I think when he moved over in 81, I think it was, he could see change on the horizon. He was choral director at RTE, which is a, you know, it's a unique position within the organization. I was engaged by John Kinsella to come into the music department in 84 as, uh, as producer of the groups, not really realizing how the ground had shifted so positively. The design that he conceived along with John Kinsella was one of... Uh, not replacement of the RT singers, but something completely different, which he felt uh, was a response to opportunity. So what young singers needed was opportunity to go into the studio and take on that discipline that goes with the concentration that's required to record meticulously every week. He was very pragmatic. He would know what he what he thought they would do well within a rehearsal period. Of course, he did find it very challenging. Uh, like, you're dealing with a children's choir of 65 young singers, 65 young, very active minds. Um, how do you sit in a room or stand in a room with all those animated thinkers who are so easily distracted and preoccupied with other things? And it, I used to watch and think, gosh, it's chaotic. Um, but as soon as he gave a downbeat, they were all on the score. Wherever he had worked before, like in London at the cathedral, I'd say the boys he worked with, they would gobble sight singing. I mean, they would just tear through things because they're doing it every day, multiple times every day. And suddenly he's in a much more uh, cautious or tentative learning environment and he has to develop his patience, you know. But it, it, things did drive him bonkers at times. I was there. As a young fellow, when I was passing through London, I remember going into the cathedral and seeing his signature on the uh, the, mu- the, or the music sheets at the back of the cathedral. So, and and I just found it amazing that uh, he always used a lovely fountain pen when he used, when he signed, and, if, and he wrote very lyrically. His name was very very lyrically inscribed, and uh, I couldn't believe that I was suddenly getting memos from him, pre-computers with this lovely fountain pen and his lyrical signature. So I I do think he probably found it very difficult at times. He was exasperated uh, at times, but at the same time, he would set himself challenges every week for recordings that I presume he thought were, you know, manageable. I think there's something about his personality which was he connected with people, you know. I remember, I think I heard his setting when David heard 
um, which Cohen, he wrote that because of a very particular circumstance in a hospital um, in Dublin whenever his first son was being born and there was a, a woman weeping um, intensely in the same area as Colin's partner then and he was terribly struck by the circumstance by which her child had been taken from her for adoption. So uh, this was like a, an absolute outpouring of um, passion and frustration and just like he couldn't believe how barbaric this was. And his setting is like it's, it's absolutely heartfelt, you know, and quite wrenching. composer you know to follow uh, trends or vogue he delighted in telling people that you know he was completely unequivocal about that I'm not following trends I'm doing what I want you know and there's a lot of the boy in Colin I think you know there's a lot of that Westminster Cathedral boy still probably I'd love to have known him as a, as a young man or whatever uh, just to see uh, what his personality was like I had a very very good relationship with him for about six years from 84 until 1990. And then a lot of things changed around 1990, which actually in a way broke his heart because the chamber choir was really stepped, RT stepped down the chamber choir. And, but you know, it, it ultimately became the National Chamber Choir, which became Chamber Choir Ireland. The children's choir is still thriving. Uh, the Philharmonic is thriving. It's a benchmark choir for uh, choral, you know, large symphonic choral singing. But his composition, you no, know, for me was quite a late, thing. He didn't promote his works a lot uh, at the time. I was mindful because you'd see manuscript around, you know, the Portobello office there. And so obviously he was writing, but it became much, much bigger. And he was so amused by his success later on. He said, I can't believe it. You know, they're selling me in America. I can't believe it. Or Charlotte Church is singing one of my settings. I can't believe it. He was so he was like, again, he was like that young boy, just amused by winning a chestnut fight. Well, you could hear his, his passion, you know, for settings and his choice of texts were critical to him. And because he was imbued with like such an, an enormous sort of legacy of choral singing at the cathedral uh, in London, he had this wonderful feel for line. It was quite old. I mean, in my view, it was quite old fashioned. He didn't go with like trends, early music trends or anything like that. If you hear his conducting of like Victoria Motets, for example, he, he is singing it fully informed by romantic developments which followed it. I think he was deeply spiritual, actually. And that came through in the way he conducted Tenebrae responsories, for example, in, for Holy Week. He was mad about Tenebrae. He absolutely adored it. And I do. And so, in fact, I, in exchanges with him by email over the last couple of years, it would often be around, you know, 
that time of the year, you know, the darkness before Easter. Because he would have lived the drama, the whole theodrama of Holy Week, step by step, you know, throughout those days in, in Westminster. I think his legacy is, is really huge. I felt that at the funeral on Saturday, you know, that anybody you met uh, had been not just appreciative of the experience they had with him, but it was, it was actually more than that. He was a very personal person. I think he wrote in a personal way. He tended not to accept blank commissions. He wanted to work with the group that was going to be performing. Everything about him was very personal. And that maybe presented him with difficulties as well. You know, that not everyone would have agreed with him at all times in London or in Dublin, in fact. But I, I, think, I, I think of his vulnerabilities and I think of his charm and wit. And you think of his talent as a motivator, like of singers and of his, like, the immense sort of contribution to choral singing, which just grew and grew and grew right in, up to his, like, into his 80s. So it's, it's a phenomenal legacy. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening and don't forget to like and subscribe to the podcast at cmc.ie forward slash amplify. We'll be back in about two weeks. Until then, bye for now.